Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm joined on this episode by Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat. Elliot, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. So, obviously, you've been doing some really impressive work at Bellingcat, and we've talked about that in the past. But in particular, there's a couple of things I think uh, we wanted to talk about on this episode. And one in particular is the book that you've got out now, which is We Are Bellingcat. And I like the way that you've sort of characterized Bellingcat as the people's intelligence agency. Um, so it'd be good to get your thoughts on that as well. But yeah, I mean, what, what was the sort of genesis really behind the, behind the book and, and why, why put out the book? Well, I've been asked to um, write a book uh, in 2016, but I didn't really feel like it was a good time to do that because I still felt there was kind of like a lot already going on with the kind of development of online open source investigation. So um, around came 2018 and we did our story on the Scripple uh, investigation and I was approached again and um, it just seemed like a better time because... At that moment, we just started moving into looking at the use of online open source investigation and evidence in justice and accountability. So it kind of gone from what was started as my hobby to something that was now being considered, you know, for use in court. So I thought it was a good time to kind of summarize where Bellingcat came from, the development of kind of the whole field and what kind of the future held for online open source investigation. I'd, I'd agree. It's a good point in time at which to do it. And, and do you feel like you've now reached a point where the sort of vision of what Bellingcat is has, has sort of coalesced to a point where actually you've sort of really framed it? Yeah, I, I think over the last two years in particular, we've gone through quite a lot of rapid growth because um, sort of at the end of um, 2018, I started kind of turning it into a more professional organization. We went from my kind of blog with me doing all the kind of admin and finance along with everything else to having like a you know a business director who then set Bellingcat up as a um, foundation in the Netherlands so we're basically now a charity in the Netherlands um, we hired a lot more staff we went from six staff members up to about 20 that we have now so we expanded a lot in that period of time and as part of that we kind of really had to think about what Bellingcat was um, which is a, even from my perspective is a, it is, is a difficult question because we often seen as like a journalism organization, but we do so much more than that. And because we're dealing with what is effectively evidence, we are exploring how the evidence can be used, you know, now for justice and accountability, because ultimately the kind of goal of Bellingcat is to have as much impact with our work as possible. And that means kind of engaging very differently with a whole range of actors than you would if you were a journalist because we don't want to just like write a story and put it out there we want to see if we can actually make change because of those stories work with partners and kind of approach this problem i guess from different angles and hope there can be you know real effective um you know change from it do you see yourselves being fairly stable now or do you see there being more kind of growth coming up for bellingcat or more change well, we've done a lot of work to kind of give ourselves a kind of stable base for growth. So now we've kind of gone through this whole process of professionalization. We It's like now we have like yearly audits and stuff like that. So we have to be very careful about how Bellingcat is run as an organization. But part of that was because we wanted to have more transparency about how we're funding. Because as you know, we get constantly accused of taking money from MI5, <laughs> the CIA, you know, all the free letter agencies. And we just wanted to be a bit clearer about that. Plus, it's helped us to have a more kind of better organizational structure for our staff. So it's kind of clearer what they're doing but now i mean I, i'm personally working a lot now on setting up banning cats um, production company because we get a lot of interest in our work from people who want to make documentaries about it even like drama series sometimes so we wanted kind of more control of that so we're now setting up a production company and we're hoping to start signing some deals quite soon to produce documentaries based off our investigations that'll be excellent i think to watch yeah definitely and it's an interesting development, I guess, then from going from the online sort of information in terms of the website, et cetera, and, and, and all of that to then going on to uh, more video-based and uh, documentary type output. So yeah, that'll be one for us all to watch, I think. In terms of, I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of way you've, you kind of characterize Bellingcat in the, in the book as being an intelligence agency by the people for the people. To what extent is that the driving force for Bellingcat, you know, how much do you see that being a large part of what you're all, what you're about? Well, for me, I mean, even in the very early days when I started doing what I was doing, I was always part of online communities. I was always kind of doing it, you know, to inform people and um, do it using evidence-based investigations. But as time has progressed and kind of the network around Bellingcat has grown, both in our kind of audience and the people we work with, I see there's just increasing value of collaboration uh, involving people from a whole range of backgrounds and not just professional backgrounds, but, you know, keen amateurs from social media. 
And they've all been a big contributor to the work that we've done with Bellingcat. And for me, the future of Bellingcat is continuing to build those networks and connecting people and looking at the way um, online discourse has kind of turned, you know, to conspiracy theories and what that's kind of led to, you know, in Washington, D.C. at the start of this year. I, I think there needs to be a kind of counter movement, a kind of counterculture to that kind of conspiratorial mindset. And I think one way to develop that is engaging people with these kinds of investigations. And it doesn't have to be, you know, about Russian assassinations and Syrian war crimes. It can be more local issues where I think often in this world we feel we're so detached from politics and even locally our kind of local community that that might be a way to re-engage with it feel you've actually are empowered to change things that affect you directly rather than being drawn into conspiracy theories and nonsense online yeah i mean that's certainly something you've noticed that's grown a huge amount i think the, the way that you've described in the book that bellingcat started off by being very much based on putting out evidence and showing where you've got your information from and and crowdsourcing as well so that you're you're happy to sort of take people correcting you or perhaps or, or sort of asking questions about you know where did you get this from how have you verified etc and actually verifying information uh is is more vital than ever really isn't it and that information environment the way it's gone over the last years you know what's your sense for where that might go in the next year or two well i think if we do nothing and we just sit back and hope you know democracy is going to be fine as long as we just keep on going i think we're <laughs> that's definitely not going to happen i mean the thing with the internet is people are being drawn together in communities that do kind of draw them into different kinds of conspiracy theories not everyone but there is a significant proportion of people and when you know we have the situation like we have in the us when mainstream politicians are using that for their own political gain that's extremely dangerous um but when there's no kind of counterforce to that i think as well we miss an opportunity to actually have a great benefit to society by engaging people in these kind of investigations and um I think there could be a real positive benefit for actually showing just ordinary people that they can be part of something like this. They still need to be have direction. I mean, we don't want kind of online mobs going after people like we've seen in the wake of the January 6th um, violence in Washington, D.C. I think there's better ways of doing it. But I, I think we have to do something because if we don't do anything, it's just going to get worse. It's not going to get better. We can't just sit back and think it's business as usual. And maybe we have to kind of reassess our relationship with different kinds of organisations, our relationships with politicians. Uh, it's been very interesting for me doing this work, at how our kind of evidence-based investigations have actually been very useful for policymakers, politicians who actually want to make change because they feel that there's you know actual evidence they can use to build their opinions on. And by engaging with them and talking to them, they find a way forwards i mean it doesn't work every single time i mean politicians are politicians but it gives us an extra way to actually engage rather than feeling you're always in opposition to people i think we need to find where, ways where we actually have similar views i mean i'm i have my own political viewpoint but that doesn't mean that people on the kind of the opposite end of the political spectrum to me at least the central part of the political school spectrum not the far left or right as they seem to be in opposition to me a lot you know, there are people you can talk to, there's people you can work with, even if you don't agree with them on every single issue. And I think we need to stop thinking about people, and this is unfortunately what the internet does, as our enemies, because they might disagree with us on one issue or another, because I don't think that's a very healthy way to run a society. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in terms of the online discourse being broken up into sort of various tribes, I guess, or people having different allegiances, I think we'd all agree that's been an unhealthy development. Um, it's interesting you see that your you know your work as being vital to helping prevent that and i'm sort of in part thinking about some of the things you describe in the book in terms of not necessarily your relationship but how you sort of compare yourself or contrast yourself really with or and bellingcat with traditional journalism and do you feel like the way that journalism has gone over the last decade or maybe even longer that actually it's it's made the problem worse in or it sort of set the scene or laid the groundwork in however you want to characterize it for the kind of current online information environment we're dealing with and that somehow your 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 work is correcting that imbalance almost i think to the extent but i think there's a kind of bigger issue i, I think there's um you know an increasing lack of trust in authority and often that's because of certain big moments that have occurred. You know, the build-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was, I think, a very significant moment. And 
a lot of the communities that appear online who kind of promote conspiracy theories around things like the conflict in Syria or, you know, the downing of MH17 often cite that moment as a reason not to trust mainstream authority. And then they use that to basically reject all mainstream authority so they can kind of have their conspiracy theories reinforced. And don't forget that, you know, I'm saying they believe in conspiracy theories, but they, you know, personally, they think they're seeking the truth and that we're the ones who are kind of trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. So I, I think um, more of it is a kind of erosion of trust uh, in kind of at the typical sources of uh, traditional sources of authority. Um, and that's not really being replaced by anything. It's being replaced really for most people by kind of online communities. And some of those online communities kind of basically lead people to become radicalized. I mean, we've, there's been such a kind of foot focus of the Internet's role on the kind of Islamic extremism and radicalization. But I think the same processes take place on a whole range of communities from, you know, people who think the earth is flat, to, you know, de deny chemical weapons attack in Syria are happening. It's I think it's the same kind of mechanisms that are behind that. You can, you know, go on YouTube and click one video that says the earth is flat and it will recommend you another one. You might click on that. You might not click on it. But, you know someone else might and then that person might keep clicking and then they're drawn into these kind of alternative media ecosystems because you know the way social media and tech platform works is to find stuff that they think you want to watch and if you're inclined to believe conspiracy theories you're going to find plenty of them online um, and I think what's a more worrying thing that's happening now is we have all these separate online communities who believe in conspiracy theories that are kind of being drawn together and you see that I've, I noticed in particular with the kind of Syria MH17 truthers and coronavirus conspiracy theories because they've started moving into that territory because it's obviously such a huge story internationally and that's drawing those kind of people in contact with the kind of alternative health kind of conspiracy minded folks so you start getting this kind of one big group who believes in conspiracy theories and I think you've seen something very similar of that happening in the US with the various movements that kind of have arisen around Donald Trump you know the people who believe in you know satanic pedophiles running the world or you know Q being real or that you know all the Democrats want to overthrow the election in a sense there's are separate kind of groups there but they're kind of being drawn together by the way in which um you know th that election was kind of um, attacked by the republican party and by donald trump and if we aren't aware of that and i honestly don't think many people are we can't solve the problem because when i talk to policymakers, you know I've, i was speaking at the european parliament recently and it was all about bots and russian influence not about the kind of damage that we're doing to ourselves as a society and until we recognize that i don't think there's any chance of actually taking the problem seriously and um you know stopping it from becoming worse that's and well there's a couple of things there one i, I liked in the book and, and what you just hinted out there which is that you've drawn a direct line between some of those key events that have taken place over the last 20 years you know from the iraq war to in 2011, the journalists' uh, phone hacking scandal that we had in the UK to other events, which, as you said, over the years have, have eroded public trust in authorities and, and actually where we get information from or have have done in the past, um, such as newspapers, etc. But then, how do you feel like we, we we bring that back, and how do we how do we break people out of these kind of online communities where the conspiracy theories are sort of being fostered and, and spread i think the big problem is is that you can't really get people out of those communities once they're in there they believe it they believe that anyone against them is part of a conspiracy against them and against the world so once you're kind of sucked into that it's really a real problem i think what we need to do is first of all kind of offer an alternative place for people to go when they have you know they want to know more about a certain subject currently if you say are you know really interested in palestinian issues often the louded voices there are connected to kind of more kind of conspiratorial thinking about other topics like Syria, for example. So you're going to be drawn into that community because there's no alternative. Um, but if you can start creating communities that are focused on these issues, that are kind of working more in the kind of Bellingcat way of analysing the evidence, working collaboratively, connecting people to different sorts of communities that can help them understand what they're looking at and empowering them that, in that way, then they aren't going to be drawn into these alternative communities. But currently, we don't offer an alternative as a society, as a culture. So until we start doing that, we can't be surprised that if someone's really interested in an issue that you know might not have a lot of mainstream coverage they're going to find these alternative media and um kind of information ecosystems and they're completely absorbed with them and some of them are going to become increasingly radicalized until they're believing all sorts of things that are just not you know based on the truth
yeah and within that atmosphere and those envir online environments it is difficult to break into them isn't it and, and get people to think differently and to sort of accept that there could be alternative explanations to what they might believe and to actually look at the evidence what about in in terms of and you mentioned this in the book as well but in terms of the level of impact you can have a, or bellingcat can have or other organizations can have by putting out sort of information that is thoroughly researched rigorously referenced you've verified it uh, how do you go about making sure that that actually does have a positive net effect well it's um something we've kind of had a lot of challenges with Ballincat, but what what we found particularly effective is working collaboratively with a range of different partners so we, I kind of describe this process we have at Bellingcat, identify, verify, and amplify, where we identify information, we verify it, and it's amplified. Now, the amplification can come in all shapes and sizes. It, you know, with the case of MH17, for example, we did articles, we did lengthier reports, we've done podcasts, but we've also done kind of documents for courts as well, because it's based on evidence. So that's kind of been like a multi-pronged approach. Now, you can actually do that all at the same time if you kind of organize things like we've been doing a lot on border pushbacks with um, Frontex and there we worked with um, kind of media partners partners who are kind of NGO focused legal partners so when we actually did our investigation and launched it it was launched from kind of multiple um, angles to you know attack that one problem and that actually had a really big effect I mean now the European Parliament is investigating Frontex because of what we've published and finding a lot of issues there but that's I think because we had that kind of range of ways of kind of approaching the problem and raising the issue because it wasn't just about one story one media report you know one Ballincat article it was about a whole range of different actors who had their own credibility saying the same thing but saying it in a different way with a different focus on different aspects of it but still bringing it to the attention of the public and bring it to the attention of those policymakers who could actually take action and knew they could actually look at our work and know it was reliable and i think that's very important and that's i think that's something that's very scalable i think that's something that can be scaled down to a very local level and that's why i'm quite interested in you know training kind of local groups and getting them connected to other kind of more you know local ngos with communities and connecting them to government and having governments understand that they're working with reliable information they aren't just being presented a bunch of opinions they're present being presented hard information data evidence because and then if they don't do anything you can get angry and vote them out but hopefully you know most politicians want to make things better in the areas around them at least in you know most parts of the world i hope well maybe not most parts but if we're trying to communicate to politicians without giving them something they can actually use then we can't be surprised when nothing happens and i think what happened has happened over the last you know years is we've become more and more detached from how our countries are run both at a kind of national level and a local level because we see politics as something other people do and we only see politics as a certain kind of engagement our approach is more that we engage in every way possible and we bring people together in kind of like a, a node where you know they might not someone might be interested in issue but might not want to get involved with the politics of it because they don't feel they're a political animal maybe but they can still get involved in the sense of doing investigation and analyzing information. And then that can be shared with people who can then take it further and move it forwards. So maybe that's a better approach to kind of resolving the issues of kind of misinformation and disinformation and the issues we face than just a bunch of websites that do fact checking and people writing about bot networks. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's often where a lot of this, uh, this does go. And, and, which is interesting. I mean, a lot of that is interesting. I think it's useful to understand and know about, how the online information environment might be being manipulated currently and how different actors, especially state level actors are using things like bots to, to do that. But you're right. It's got to, there's got to be more engagement, I think from people in how they can also do this themselves and, and understand what's going on around them in the, you know, in the world around them and actually contribute to that. That's a really interesting concept. Um, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the future and I've got a couple of um, future oriented questions for you. One is, around how you see the online information environment changing in terms of uh, based on what you've seen so far and, and also the response to some of this as you describe all of the things you were just talking about there in terms of let's say more people become adept at some of the techniques and some of the practices that you've promoted at Bellingcat and you've got more local groups operating in the way that you described 
does that in turn then change the response of some of the, the you know, could be governments or other actors that they're they're writing about or that they're exposing? Well, I hope I hope it can have a positive effect. I mean, it's hard to say because you know, in, in a sense, Bellingcat has done that, but it's not in a mass organised scale. Now, you know, imagine if there was a Bellingcat in every country working with local groups and the kind of impact that could have. You know, we've already done, you know, work where you know we, for example, looking into executions in Cameroon, where the government went from saying it's fake news to you know put, putting the people on trial and jailing them because of a group of people online working together you know i've helped you know rescue stolen dogs using open source investigation you can do this on a really wide scale and i think you know if we're talking about you know if i could wave a magic wand i think it would be a net positive if we did have communities online who were focused on a range of issues both local and um, international but connected to each other because you you might not find you know, you there might be someone who is really good investigator, but they just enjoy doing investigations and they aren't focused on a particular issue. And if those people can be connected to people who, you know, want stuff investigated and want to be part of something like that, that could be very powerful indeed. And really, it's never really about Bellingcat being like a central node in that network, but one of many nodes where we can constantly be connected to each other and find the right people to work with. And we don't always have to work with the same people every single time, and we do that all the time. But... Um, you know, the alternative is we don't do something like that. And we start saying, okay, what's the alternative? Well, social media, that seems to be quite bad. So let's just ban everyone who's sharing misinformation. Well, what's what's true and what's not true? Well, who's the judge of that? It's easy to say, yeah, flat earthers are crazy. And what about then people who say that Syrian chemical weapons attacks are being faked? Uh, should they be banned from social media? Because then there's quite a few journalists and politicians who might start getting banned from social media for saying that kind of stuff. I mean, it, who then becomes the kind of people who decide what's true or false? Do we say the OPCW decides if a chemical weapon attack happened or not? Well, they certainly haven't looked at every single chemical weapon attack in Syria. So if I say a chemical weapon attack happened and the OPCW doesn't, does that mean everyone can argue about those ones? But it just becomes so insanely complicated. I think they're just obviously you know when it's extremely blatant there has to be a line but policing this is really difficult and the fact we're giving the kind of you know power to decide who how that's done to policymakers who don't even have a clue about any of this on any level it's scary like we're talking about the repeal of what is it in the US 230 the uh, thing that allows you to say anything you want on social media in America I can never remember the number but it's uh Article 230, I think it's called. Yeah, it's it's. Um, so they're talking about repealing that so you can't say, you know, false stuff on social media. So the platforms, Twitter, Facebook, are treated like publishers. Well, this has always been an interesting debate, hasn't it, about whether they are pub- publishers because they've always vehemently argued against it and increasingly they've had to step in and become more editorial, I suppose, in terms of what they allow and what they don't allow. I guess the, the, the question is, are they the publishers or are individuals their own publishers? This, I think, is an issue because... You know, Facebook, by creating Facebook groups, allowed a way for communities to be built. And, you know, that's lovely. We can all go and talk about our favorite things. Unfortunately, some people's favorite things are anti-Semitism, racism, conspiracy theories. But Facebook is, a, in a sense, a equal opportunity platform where you can talk about nice things, you can talk about bad things, and you'll find be pointed to like-minded people. So... Maybe the question is, maybe Facebook should get rid of things like Facebook groups to make it harder for us to communicate together. Or maybe they should push certain kinds of groups off those platforms. But then they just find other platforms that aren't so well regulated. They go off to 4chan and 8chan and Parler. So do we then start pushing the people with the most kind of extreme and radical ideas to the edges of the Internet that's harder to be to police? And I, I, I think the way the solution is being approached at the moment of saying we need to ban people from these platforms or we need to put restrictions on them will never really resolve the issue. It's kind of just pushing it from one platform to another whilst we aren't really addressing the fundamental issues, which are the you know distrust in authority that's developed um, and the way in which the uh, kind of communities kind of self-radicalize over time. And the fact that there are communities that are looking for a way to engage in politics and engage with the world but they aren't really finding a way to do that without becoming kind of drawn into these kind of more extreme communities in a way it's kind of if you think about where you know the development of kind of 4chan and those platforms a lot of the reason they got involved with you know where they are 
now is because they realize that they can have an impact in the real world by working together. So things like Project Chanology, when they went off to Scientologists, I mean, I think quite a few people would be quite pleased that 4chan had gone off to Scientologists. But then that eventually, you know, built into the kind of activism you see around Donald Trump and the far right coming from those kind of platforms. But it's really, I think, about a bunch of people on those forums realizing that they could actually do stuff. I think for me, one of the earliest moments was when um, Obama was elected, when Joe Biden was possibly going to be the um, nominee for vice president and there was like a live stream on the internet and this was quite uh, you know this mid 2000s so a live stream on the internet was a special thing then and um, someone ordered a huge amount of pizzas and sent them to Joe Biden's house so you, and then everyone watched on the live stream as this poor pizza delivery guy came up with an armful full of pizzas and like got stopped by confused secret service people which is very funny for all the people watching it but for me I kind of look at that as one of the first signs of people on the internet realizing that they can have an impact in the real world in that way and then you saw building from there these kind of um, you know things like project Chanology and these other things where people online started basically harassing people but in a kind of an activist kind of way which just got worse and worse and worse but that's why we are you know at the point we are now I mean really though that pizza delivery could be you know almost a direct line from that pizza delivery to what happened on January 6th in Washington in some sense. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting seeing the build-up of these things over time and how how it has changed. And I guess, uh, you know, to that extent, are you seeing any sort of negative impacts in terms of how the information environment is being affected or changed um, because people are trying increasingly to hide some of this negative activity that you're aiming to expose? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when everyone's using Twitter and Facebook, it's a lot easier to find them. When they all go off and start using Telegram and WhatsApp and, you know, Parler, and Parler gets shut down and then reopened, it's harder to kind of track them across platforms because it kind of becomes fragmented. It's a lot easier if everyone's just on the same Twitter thread, you know, to be terrible <laughs> so you can all find them. But it's just, I mean... It's the nature of the internet that is constantly changing and evolving and that you've just got to deal with that as an investigator. So we can't assume that stuff that worked a few years ago will work today. You constantly have to be learning and, you know, seeing where the information is. But that's just the internet nature of the internet. And there are going to be governments who kind of crack down on stuff like in Russia, where they've started banning um, soldiers from sharing their you know photographs of their service. Um, that seems to be in direct reaction to what we are doing with Ukraine and MH17 showing Russia's involvement there. But that's kind of hasn't stopped us doing more investigations as Russia is fully aware of. Um, even then, when we've done like the Scriffle stuff and the stuff with Navani and all the other people they've been murdering with nerve agents, they've tried to kind of shut down these sources. But in a sense, Russia is so inherently corrupt that they can't because it, there's always going to be another source that appears somewhere that gives you access to that information because there's a fundamental kind of cancer of corruption at the heart of Russia. So, um, it, it, I mean, it changes and it evolves and we just have to kind of change and evolve along with it. Mm. Interesting. That sort of leads me on to what, what was the sort of second future-oriented question I had, which was... Um, you mentioned there some of the big cases that you've been involved in, the MH17, uh, the Skripal poisoning. And I, I was really interested in the, the passage in the book, actually, where you're describing almost being on, being on sort of tenterhooks waiting for the um, a, a lead that you can actively investigate around the Skripal poisoning. You know, a lot of, a lot of the investigative work you've been involved in is, is focused on looking at something that's already happened. Are there? Are you, are you aiming to do any more in terms of trying to anticipate when something might happen? So, in terms of when the next conflict might flare up somewhere, or you know, where there's potentially sort of a genocide in the offing that you know that the, you could spot potentially early and do something about. I think it's possible. The, the problem is people don't want to pay you know grants and funding for stuff that hasn't happened yet. And there has to be kind of a consistent monitoring of places. And it's like, where do we monitor? I mean, Bellingcat has 20 staff members who are doing current investigations. And monitoring takes a lot of work. You need people who are constantly engaged looking at stuff. So doing that in, a, I think, a centralized fashion really wouldn't work. But again, we can look at almost a decentralized model for this. There are kind of bodies, you know, NGOs, um, you know, who focus on certain regions of the world and equipping them to actually monitor this stuff and then kind of connect them to a kind of open source community. So when stuff does look like it's going in a bad direction, they can kind of, you know, immediately start pointing that out to a community that might have the capacity 
you know, as a, you know, thousands of people to start looking at something rather than trying to rely on kind of one group expanding, expanding to cover it all. So that's like why at the moment on Bellingcat, we're trying to develop like a, a volunteer section that will allow people to come, just volunteer a bit of their time. We'll kind of task certain things for them to, you know, verify or look at, but then it's a lot more organized than, you know, the situation at the moment, which is basically Twitter and hoping people kind of come across stuff and then just having endless threads somewhere. Um, because then we're hoping that will act as a basis for a growing community of people who are engaged with open source investigation and have a way to constantly hone their skills with a constant stream of kind of new stuff to look at. Because we're kind of approaching that by working with um, partners like uh, Monomic Labs, who um, run the Syrian archive and the Yemen archive, by taking content from those archives that need you know geolocation done to them and having that done in batches by this community alongside ongoing investigations and kind of breaking news events like we had with the downing of PS752 at the start of last year where that just was suddenly a thing where there's all this evidence and we need lots of people to look at it and we were able to kind of do that ourselves but if we can have that in a volunteers platform we can process that data in a way a much quicker way and in a sense you could think of it as like a kind of a, a organic human search engine you know that's much better than Google you just have to figure out a way to get everyone kind of looking at things so kind of crowdsourcing essentially. Yeah, effectively, yeah. And by building that community of people who are kind of involved with this kind of crowdsourced analysis, um, the fact it's open source as well is that you can double check this stuff and you can kind of cross-reference it against other people and, you know, be sure that this stuff's accurate. But by building that, you'll eventually have not just dozens of people doing it, you could hopefully have thousands, tens of thousands of people engaged with going through this material. And that could be extremely efficient and extremely quick because, you know, we've done work, for example, on the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign, where Europol was asking for people to identify objects cut out from abuse imagery so they could hopefully find where this was they were taken. And um, we started kind of amplifying that. We shared it with our audience, which was much bigger than Europol's audience and was made up of people who love those kind of puzzles. And that led to lots of these objects being identified and victims and perpetrators being um, rescued and arrested. Yeah, that's fantastic work. Yeah, so just in terms of that sort of more future-oriented sort of requirement, is there anything do you think or you anticipate in terms of either technological developments or the way that people are approaching this type of work that you think could help? I think it's kind of coming up with more systemized ways of collecting information. It's like um, you look at the work of the Syrian archive, they've got over a million videos from Syria at the moment. Um, and if we can start collecting that information from conflicts in a way that's kind of you know, gathering additional information, not just downloading as much stuff from YouTube as possible, but hopefully adding useful metadata on there. It makes it much more searchable and useful. And by having these kind of bigger kind of um, sets of data, you can start doing interesting things with them. It's like they're currently developing um, processes to automatically identify things like cluster munitions in videos. And one of the ways they're doing that, they're working with a partner who um, they're 3D printing copies of cluster munitions and then scanning them from every angle and using that to train um, kind of AI to identify them in videos. So when a video is being you know reviewed, it can automatically pick out every sighting of a possible cluster bomb. Um, Forensic Architecture, for example, did that with identifying tanks in the conflicts in Ukraine from a large data set of videos. So it's kind of developing those technologies that are very much focused on conflict could be very useful, especially when combined with um, you know, the platforms where they're initially being shared, which is often YouTube, to kind of make it a lot easier to find this kind of material. And if you have massive archives, search through that kind of material. I mean, already we're using facial recognition quite a lot to search through masses of material, like I've been looking through the January 6th um, videos, and that's they're very useful for kind of reducing the amount of time you have to kind of dig through every single video looking for an individual face. Now, I don't think tools are ever going to replace, you know, the work of a researcher, but it can make the work of a researcher a lot less um, painful and really it's about having an expanding kind of toolbox that we can draw on when we're doing these investigations um, and my, my hope is that in the future we have plenty more tools to actually work with yeah no doubt and um, especially when as you said going through video content which can be incredibly resource intensive and you, you mentioned the, in, in the book the challenge of of deep fakes which interestingly I thought you said you know it doesn't worry you at the moment too much but do you worry that as that becomes better quality and as it, that, that trend uh, we see maybe increase or, or become more um, prevalent that as, those video, as there's more of those videos out there, it does increase the amount of time you've got to spend perhaps verifying information, which ultimately is rubbish, but looks genuine enough that you've got to spend time digging into it? 
I think there might be a bit of a deep fakes kind of arms race where you'll have um, tech companies trying to develop software to dissect it and other tech companies trying to develop stuff that's undetectable deep fakes. So I, I think that's the way it's going because, I mean, our approach, because we're approaching this stuff as evidence, we have cross-reference stuff, verify it. You know, if a video appears online, we don't just assume it's true, but then there's plenty of social media users who will retweet that in the time it takes us to verify it and that's kind of where i think the danger is it has to be kind of identified very very rapidly um otherwise it will face um it will still have this danger where a deep fake could become viral and then cause something to happen and you know the original thing was you know not true a question i wanted to ask you actually which was related to an event that i was um involved in recently where i was uh, talking to a group of students about um, careers in open source intelligence, open source investigations, I guess, as well. And um, one of the questions that came up from a few people was, where, where's a good place to get started or how to get started in this sector? Um, so I thought I'd throw that question to you and sort of see what, what, what would you advise sort of people who are trying to get into this area um, these days? Because obviously you, you started in a particular way, you know, 10 years ago, analyzing uh, videos from the, the sort of Arab Spring related uh, turmoil and conflicts that were going on at the time. But um, how, how might people get started these days? I mean, in some sense, it's a little bit easier because there is an interest in hiring people with open source investigation skills. But I think still when people are looking for that, they're looking for people who have some sort of track record. And the only way you can really do that before you have a job is basically just spending time and kind of doing you know like a blog or something like that writing your own articles showing your analysis and do it because you love doing what you're doing not because you feel it's serving a particular audience um because otherwise i, I think the best open source investigators are the ones who are doing things because they're interested in the topic they're doing and they're willing to look through a million you know social media pages to find <laughs> the one photograph that gets them and has that have the patience to do that and if you aren't doing it because you love it then you're just going to end up hating your life so i'd recommend finding something you enjoy doing and it doesn't have to be the biggest topic in the world it can be you know lost dogs or whatever it may be but just dedicate yourself to working on that writing about it and thinking about how you're writing how you present your work how you're transparent about your evidence and your methodology um, in your writing and the fact that you're right when you actually write something up you're explaining it like that will make you a better investigator because you'll be constantly kind of thinking about what you're doing you could go to our web website actually um, yemen.bellingcat.com where we actually lay out an investigative methodology that that's designed to be used um, for legal proceedings. So if you're working to that kind of level and you're trying to aim for that every time, then you'll be producing really good quality work. That was the next thing I was gonna ask you about was maybe you could talk a little bit more about that Yemen project. Yes, yeah, so um, with our experience with MH17, where we were asked to you know, present some evidence to various legal proceedings and then having to go back to our work from 2014 and basically recreate it using dead links and you know, just a really painful recreation of all our work to fit kind of for a core. We realized that there was a lot of these kind of incidents that could be investigated in places like Syria and Yemen, but kind of no real way, no kind of framework for doing it. So we wanted to develop a process where a typical kind of Bellicat researcher, which we hope is going to be, you know, an average researcher in any organization, could have a process laid out where they know what they're looking for in terms of, you know, what they're, you know, the kind of who, what, why, where, you know, how of the investigation they're doing it. I have a process that allows them to archive material as they're doing it. And we're using, um, we were using Hunchly for that in our process. But also the idea is that each part of this process can be kind of replaced by another platform or something. So you can keep upgrading it or use whatever's more suitable for your organizations. But there's always like a minimum standard for what you're trying to achieve. Plus working with um, the Syrian archive and the Yemen archive to create a platform for storing videos that we're finding in a you know, hashed and you know, secure way and then being able to combine that all at the end of the process. So we basically have one case file that has all the evidence, the analysis, the kind of hunchly recording of all the stuff we've looked at during the investigation that then can be used in any kind of legal proceeding that requires that evidence, that is investigating those incidents and requires those evidence. And we did that with multiple incidents in Yemen. Um, that was quite an interesting process because it does teach you that there's not a kind of one size fits all kind of incident in a sense. There's a um, you know there's a certain kind of incident that can be investigated, like an airstrike or a, you know bombing or one kind of explosive moment in a way can be investigated in one way. But if there's something that's kind of more complicated, you've got to take another approach to that. So that was something we learned from that, and we'll de we've developed kind of one approach, and we're going to hopefully develop the other one. Um, we worked with the Global Legal Action Network and actually had that evidence from Yemen submitted to the UK government's um, inquiry into arms exports to Saudi Arabia. 
not that it made any difference because they just moved the goalposts and <laughs> did it anyway. I was going to say, it's, it's a current and live issue, isn't it, that that's being debated, I suppose. Yeah, moment. and um, this week we'll be having a mock trial um, with real lawyers and judges uh, on one of those incidents that we documented so we can kind of test how it would be used and kind of attacked in a courtroom environment because we'll then take that and then kind of use that to refine what we're doing. Um, I mean, our initial feedback so far has been very good on what we've provided the, the lawyers. Well, it's been very bad for the defence, but very good for the pro- prosecution. That's the side we're on. Um, so it's, it's been right. good, but we're, we continue to want to kind of refine this process. But but again, it comes down to the thing that, you know, Bellingcat is doing this and we're a small organisation and we're trying to resolve what's actually a really big, complex legal problem and i think with the amount of open source evidence that's now coming from conflict zone you need to have uh you know a process for analysis that isn't just doesn't belong to one organization and doesn't belong to an organization that has a massive budget because i think you will see more smaller organizations that might be like bellingcat or more traditional ngos investigating these incidents and the idea of pro- developing this process is so we can actually package it up and give it to other organisations and they can tweak the bits they want, but they know that it has been tested. And part of that as well is as we're developing archives of material from these conflict zones, creating an archiving system that allows multiple archives kind of to talk to each other and kind of be searchable um, from like one main interface. Because as people are gathering this evidence, they might not want to share it with other organisations, but you still want parties who want to find that information, like, for example, the IIIM on Syria or the ICC, to be able to search and discover that. So on top of all those archives, you want a kind of system that allows for searching through that material, which then brings us to the point of creating material that has useful metadata, which is part of the reason we've got this volunteers project with the Syrian archive to add useful metadata to the content they've got. So it's kind of, we have to, again, have a multi-pronged approach to this process. It's not about just about creating stuff we can give to a court, but turning that into something that can be shared with other organisations and having all those organisations being able to kind of work collaboratively together or work separately from each other, but still have that information accessible to the kind of end users of what we'll be doing. So does that mean that there's there's got to be some way of creating a common way of structuring those archives so that they can be cross-searched? It's not even that the structure has to be common. But I mean, there, there are ways to kind of put something in that allows it to you know be translated so that the search engine can actually look at different styles of archives, but we just have that kind of intermediary step to translate it. Really, we're looking at... Um, how we can index those kind of that content. Um, we've been working uh, with Benetech, uh, or they've been working rather, I should say, on a um, engine that allows them to basically index videos based off the content of the videos. Um, and if you have similar videos, they'll actually be grouped. So you can actually tell if you know if you film a building it from one angle and someone films it from another angle, those videos can be associated with each other, which is very good for kind of looking through you know a million videos because it allows you to group those videos that have similar structures. Then, in the case of what we're doing with the um, uh, volunteer section, we can kind of give those in batches to the volunteers to geolocate, and because they're all showing a similar location, it should actually make it a lot faster than you know 200 random videos from all over Syria. So you can actually be a lot more systematic about how you go through it, but it also means you can create indexes across multiple archives where you might have a video in one archive and another three archives have the same video, and they will all have the same kind of indexing number just you know separated by archive so you can say oh you've got that video so i can actually share you know metadata about that video with you or not if i don't want to or you might find someone has videos that are actually similar to your videos that you don't have and you can communicate with them saying oh can i have a look at those because it might be useful in my research so um it's really about taking this huge issue of data management and trying to find a solution for it and keeping in mind that the people who we were often working with these videos at the kind of analysis end of it won't have mega budgets for it. And I think in a way, the kind of donor community, the community of people of end users have to see the problem in those terms, which are very different terms from as they've kind of handled them in the past, even if they have handled them, because, you know, this is a data management relating to conflict videos, which is not you know, a huge wide known issue. And um, I think until we meet those challenges, we're always going to be having the same problems again and again and again when we're looking at conflict, where we're kind of building everything from the ground up 
because the people who worked on Syria have built all this stuff, but the people who might be working on a completely different conflict that has no connections don't even know that's the thing that exists. Um, so it's a really big challenge. And, you know, we're trying to do what we can at Bellingcat, but we're, you know, a tiny organisation. Um, and, you know, we have to carry a lot of weight and we're doing this stuff on like a shoestring project. I mean, the initial Yemen project honestly nearly caused Bellingcat to go bankrupt. It was like a real... It, turned into a real uh, nightmare for us um fortunately we survived that but it's it's not something that's easy to do and if i think donors don't really realize that and they don't learn about it and they don't see the value of it which i think might be the case at the moment we'll never really be able to you know build anything that's usable and i think it's really crucial for the future of kind of conflict analysis that we start doing this and it's not just about banning getting the money to develop it but then giving it to other organizations training them how to use it and letting them use it in their own work um, and then developing the platforms for indexing that allows you know the end users to actually access the information. So it's a big complex issue, but unfortunately at the moment it's kind of very hard to communicate because it is a big complex issue. Yeah, no, indeed. But I mean, if that problem can be solved, there's a huge benefit there in terms of that data and that those archives being connected together, being incredibly powerful for researchers into into current conflicts ongoing conflicts but also then when it comes to those legal prosecutions afterwards i mean that's that that just sounds like an incredible resource that that would be you know of huge benefit generally for everyone so yeah i mean if i hope there is some way for it to be to be put together and that you can get the funding for that because um it, it, I, I don't think anyone should underestimate the amount of work that's involved. I know just from what you've described there that that is inc- an incredible undertaking in terms of just the, the level of effort that's involved. And if you're relying on, as you said, volunteers who might, or even smaller organizations who might have a focus on a particular conflict, um, then you're going to end up with lots of disparate data sets sort of spread around the place. But the power really comes in connecting them together. And I think as well, once you have those massive data sets, you can do really interesting things with the analysis of those data sets. So the Syrian Archive is already doing this a lot with the um, kind of AI searching for certain munitions um, thing I described earlier. But there's so much that could be done with that that will in the future make this content easier to search through and it will make it easier for us to identify incidents in conflicts that need investigation rather than the situation we have with, with Syria where it was being left down to often it felt like just me and my blog and hoping someone would find it and it allows people to be more informed about what's happening happening it allows policymakers to make decisions based on evidence not just like we saw with the uh, debate about the syrian chemical uh, weapon attack in 2013 in the uk parliament a discussion about their favorite columnists views on chemical attacks so um i i, I, I and it's just one of these really frustrating things i think sometimes with bellingcat where we can see the problem we can see the scope and the scale of it and the solution for it but we're a tiny little organization despite you know our profile you know we have 20 staff members and you know i think sometimes people think we have must have millions of people working for us for some of the stuff we achieve i mean it's like the russian um spy stuff i mean that's the work of one person doing it on a volunteer basis and that and i think sometimes I've, I've spoken to funders in the past who just say, oh, Bellingcat must have huge amounts of funding for the work we do. And I was like, well, I can have about £60,000 a year, thanks. And it's like, it, it just is very frustrating when you know there's a very clear path forwards to find the solution to the problem and you know what that solution is. You just need the resources from to magically appear from somewhere to actually make that happen. Wow, yeah, no, that's incredible. And is that funding that you're always having to apply for as well and keep applying for? Well, yeah, I mean, a big part of my business team at the moment, and we've, fortunately, we've, um, I mean, we've expanded, we've kind of doubled our size, you know, with regards to turnover uh, every year since we launched. So we've gone from 2014 having about, you know, £50,000 from a Kickstarter to our budget this year to being about €2 million, Euros, um, which when you compare it to some NGOs is still tiny, um, but it has allowed us now to have a business team that, you know, is focused increasingly on fundraising. But before, you know, before 2018, it was literally me doing all the fundraising, all the accounts, all the bank reconciliations, all the invoices, like everything. So even, you know, this development to where we are now has only happened really over the last two years. 
Um, and it does sometimes it does feel like we're carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders and they aren't very big shoulders but I mean I'm glad to say that we are still growing and expanding and we do have a kind of solid growth for future uh, solid base of future growth yeah I hope so and in in terms of the work you're doing as you said I mean it really does establish a basis for then how we look at and study future conflicts and when those you know break out that there is some basis there for doing that in a way which um doesn't reinvent the wheel each time you know that we, we've got that already there and um that other organizations can use that, that that methodology you've developed and and hopefully make it easier to bring to light the truth of what's happening in these places and in these conflicts and uh, i mean for me it was very frustrating during the armenian azerbaijani conflict that we could see exactly the same sort of content that we'd seen in every other conflict but because we were busy doing other stuff we couldn't analyze any of it and there could have been so much valuable valuable analysis done of that conflict that includes identifying war crimes that we literally couldn't do because we just didn't have the capacity to do it at the time and the fact that a lot of this ends up relying on like single in organizations just having enough time in their schedule to investigate horrific war crimes is a really really big problem and I, I think until that problem's addressed, you know, you'll see more conflicts where terrible things happen that could be investigated, but don't get investigated just because tiny organizations don't have time to do it. Yeah, no, indeed. And uh, I mean, maybe we can, we can sort of help you, <laughs> help you through this podcast, perhaps amplify that message that, you know, there's, there are ways to do this better and that, you know, you guys are, are in the forefront of developing those methodologies that um that will help keep on top of conflict research so yeah um, hopefully if if, it, if there are organizations out there listening that hopefully uh they'll find ways to to help you fund some of the activities because especially with some of these conflicts you know even even so, even something like yemen where th there's been conflict now going on for you know i think think since 2013 um the, the current conflict and it just doesn't get the coverage that it should have and there's there's so much there which is critical not only to the region but on a more geopolitical global basis that that could have an impact um based on how that conflict plays out and yet it just feels like it's it's almost sort of semi-forgotten in a way um and and there's a huge human tragedy at the heart of it and so i think you know there's a real value in the work that you guys are doing and so hopefully uh, it'll get more attention yeah and i hope that um you know with what we've done with yemen it shows that it's not just about one conflict or another it's not that syria is unique i mean it, it actually did surprise me with yemen how much information we were able to find because you think of it as being a kind of less connected society yet we are able to you know investigate dozens of incidents using exactly the same sources and methodologies that we've been using in our previous investigations on syria so um you know I, we, we if we keep on having to reinvent the wheel every time there's a major conflict then we're really not going to get anywhere yeah no indeed well i mean yeah let's let's be hopeful and let's hope that things do improve and that just through the the sort of rigorous information gathering and um verification and putting out there actually what's going on in conflict zones that you're able to achieve a huge impact and um yeah I look forward to seeing how things develop for bellingcat and um uh, as I said, I've really enjoyed the book and I hope other people will too. Um, so yeah, thanks thanks for coming on the podcast again, Elliot. It's been great to great to talk to you and great to get an update on on what's been going on and, and also where you see things currently and how you see the information environment developing in the future. Uh, that's great. Thanks for having me on. Mm -hmm.